Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 5th, which is, of course, in the United States, where I am, Labor Day. Uh, Labor Day has always been intriguing, especially, I think, for foreigners, because Labor Day in Europe and around the world is celebrated on the 1st of May, but it speaks perhaps to the oddity of American intellectual labor history, history on the left. Uh, as it happens, um, it was President Grover Cleveland, a conservative, um, who... Um, who initiated Labor Day, I think, back in 1886. It speaks of the way in which American political history and I think um, European history, intellectual history, especially when it comes to the left, have diverged. Uh, I think that's the case also with Franklin D. Roosevelt, who is the subject of our show today. Uh, Roosevelt, of course, is the father of the New Deal the man who perhaps shaped America and America's role in the world in the 20th century more than anyone else, a man of remarkable abilities, politically and otherwise, uh, but also a man who's not necessarily seen perhaps outside America as a man on the left, uniquely American. So who is this FDR? That's what we're going to be discussing today with my guest, Jonathan Darman, who has a new book out, Becoming FDR, the personal crisis that made a president. Jonathan is joining us from Brooklyn today. Uh, Jonathan, happy Labor Day, if, if one can have a happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to you, Andrew. Um, I, 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 that's really interesting historical context that you make about the divergence between the United States and everywhere in the world. Um, we don't have to be just polite, Jonathan, because you're on my show, but is there anything in that? And how does that sort of tie in? How can that uh, begin our conversation about FDR? Well, so I'll confess that I'm not I'm, I'm not that familiar with the history behind the his, the actual holiday of Labor Day uh, in the United States. But I do know that May 1st, the traditional labor holiday around the world is a day that the American sort of political establishment has always um, dealt with with a, with a fair amount of apprehension. Um, ever at least in in ever since the early 20th century, when we we had the sort of post-war uh, terror of of the supposed socialist menace, um, and it was seen as a day um, where where really there you know there was there was a potential for threat to the established order. Um, there's actually a scene early in my book, which which is about um, about how polio transformed FDR's life. And really, and really uh, made him into a different person uh, in the middle of life. He got polio at age 39. Um, so I spent some time in the beginning of the book talking about who he was before polio. And he had a whole career in politics um, as uh, a New York State legislator, and then as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy uh, during the during the First World War and the aftermath of the First World War. And there's there's a scene in the book. Um, of the sort of May Day bombings that happened in the spring of 1919, um, actually one of them being uh, the the uh, 
this was, this was later in the spring of 1919, the, the bombing of A. Mitchell Palmer's house in Washington, which was right across the street from where Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt lived. And that's where we think of as sort of the origins of the Red Scare in the United States. And so FDR is sort of present at that moment. And at that point, he is uh, 37 years old, and he's really trying to sort of grab on to whatever the political current of the day is. And as I discuss in the book, he's really not well equipped um, to present himself as a sort of leading figure of post-war American life. He first needs something to happen to him, which is going to really shake up his world and, and force him to become, in a lot of ways, a different person. Yeah, of course, he didn't invite that. Um, and it's a really interesting thesis, uh, Jonathan, in the book, Becoming FDR. The, I'm not sure if you came up with this language. Adversity can lead to greatness. Greatness can remake the world. The idea that between um, 1921 and 1929, Roosevelt contracted polio, became disabled, discovered and rediscovered himself. It's such a uniquely American narrative. If that happened anywhere else, the man would have gone off to the Spanish Civil War. He would have joined the labor movement. He would have had a love affair. He might have discovered that he was a homosexual. But certainly in political terms, in the 1920s, he would have uh, found himself on the left. There was so much going on. Um, but of course, Roosevelt, for better or worse, got sick. And so he spent the 20s, which was a remarkable decade, what, making sense of himself. Was he really out of sorts in 1921? Was he always... Um, was he always in the uh, the shadow of his uh, what was it his cousin Teddy Roosevelt who was the man the ultimate man of action? Yeah, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was was his fifth cousin. Um, and you know, I, I I set out to write a book about FDR's presidency um, because I wanted to sort of understand all that he was able to accomplish in the depression and leading the, this country through the depression and World War II. Um, but I also found him, I think a lot of us in America feel like he can be a somewhat inaccessible figure. Um, Robert E. Sherwood, who was one of his speechwriters, a famous playwright and, and later a Roosevelt biographer, talked about FDR's heavily forested interior. Um, and so he's, he's someone who for all of his greatness uh, can seem quite remote. Um, and I really thought when I when I set out to write the book that I was going to write about the presidency and I thought I was going to cover polio in in half a chapter um, because I thought what was significant, uh, what was significant about polio was chiefly the things that FDR did to conceal the extent of his disability from the public when he was president in the 1930s and 40s. But when I started actually looking at his life. I found out that the polio story was completely different from what I had thought it was. Um, and it was really in a lot of ways so much more key to understanding who he was and who he became. Um, and that, and a lot of that came from looking at who he was before polio. So he was a, a sort of just a, a ski on of a, of a, a very uh, upper class, East Coast distinguished, storied family with of course, um, with of course his 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 cousin being um, being the former president, was he always a disappointment? Did he think of himself in 1921 as a kind of disappointment to his family, to his class, 
to his country. No, I think he thought of himself, um, he thought of himself in pretty high terms. And really, you know, he, he was someone who at that point, up until he got polio, really expected that things would always work out for him, because for the most part, they always had. Um, he did, you know, idolize um, his cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, who at the point when, you know, FDR graduated from college in 1903, um, when, when Teddy Roosevelt was the president of the United States and sort of the greatest American man of the age. So FDR at that period in time is sort of looking for direction and purpose. And he fixates on this idea that he can be like his famous cousin and he can he can achieve the same kind of glory. So the, the frontier man, the adventurer, the man. Yeah, it was a lot less authentic in FDR's case. I think FDR was more comfortable in sort of more refined settings. He liked hunting and fishing, but he didn't really rough it. He didn't it. have the, the charisma of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, did he? It, it, was, it was more superficial. Um, he was really good. By the time he entered politics uh, in, in the 19-teens and, 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 um, and went to Washington in 1913, he was charming. He was very attractive. Um, and he was he was he was someone that people liked to be around to a certain extent, but it was all on a sort of surface level. So, for example, in 1920, um, he got himself on the Democratic ticket as the vice presidential candidate. That was a losing ticket by in a landslide election, I should add. Um, but he got himself on the ticket in large part because people liked the way that he looked um, as he was jumping over rows of, of seats at the Democratic convention that year. Um, and, you know, he was a smart guy. He was an attractive guy. He was an accomplished guy in a lot of ways. But there wasn't that sort of seriousness of purpose to him. It's not just the seriousness. He seems, and maybe this is typical of his class or his generation, or maybe just America generally. He's a man outside history. We've done a lot of shows about Churchill, for example. We did one with Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who's written a very, very critical book about Churchill. But mm. Churchill was a product of history and Churchill was shaped by the First World War. What kind of impact did the First World War have on Roosevelt? This complete catastrophe, this defining event of the 20th century. Did, did, did Roosevelt give it much thought? Doesn't seem, it seems as if it almost passed him by. I mean, I think, I think there's, it's, it's, it's really important for in the way that it was for all of the leaders of that generation uh, for him in several respects. He was the assistant secretary of the Navy, which at that point was the number two person in the Navy department. Right, um, and Churchill, of course, was the secretary of the Navy. Catastrophically, he was responsible for the Dardanelles, so he had that in common. Yeah, and they have this sort of famed early or first meeting at, at Gray's Inn in London where, where Churchill sort of, um, uh, you know, doesn't pay any FD, any attention to FDR. And it's sort of this abortive first meeting. Uh, FDR London. paid him back in spades later in his life. <laughs> That's right. I, th I, think, I think that FDR, you know, FDR was someone who had a long memory and when it was in his interest could hold a grudge. So I think that some of the early... Uh, wariness in the relationship there. Mm. Um, so back, sorry, I, I threw, I interrupted you, uh, Jonathan. Back to the First World War. What impact did did the war have on 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 FDR? So he was the assistant secretary of the Navy during World War One, and there, and he was in an administration, the Wilson administration, that was 
opposed in the early years to American entry into the war. And FDR, meanwhile, came from the sort of Eastern establishment, which was much more interventionist. And he was much, and he was again sort of following the example of his cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, who at that point was arguing that America should get in the war and get right. in. We, we did a show with Neil Langtot, the historian, uh, on this, these three people who determined whether or not America would get in the war, Roosevelt, Wilson, and Jane Adams. Um, mm. And of course, that was Teddy Roosevelt. What was, um, what was uh, FDR's uh, opinion of this huge division between Roosevelt and Wilson in terms of getting into the war? So he he would say privately, um, and I think not so privately, he sided with his cousin um, and he made, he wanted it to be known. I think he felt that it was going to be inevitable that America ultimately would enter the war despite the reservations of Wilson and Roosevelt's superior in the Navy Department, Josephus Daniels. I think FDR felt that it was inevitable that America was going to eventually enter the war and that, and he was sort of concerned to the point of obsession with the question of naval preparedness. But he was also, I think, in a lot of ways, looking out for his own political career. He didn't want the sort of conventional wisdom in the United States to change and look like the like the American government. So he was the anti-Churchill. He wasn't willing to take public bets, for better or worse. Uh, he, he, he was never willing to really go out on a limb and say, look, this is what I think. I'll, I may win, I may lose through this, but this is what I believe. What did he believe then? Where's the core of the man? That's what I don't see, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was abstract at that point. He what does was that mean, abstract? abstract? Well, it was not based in any, in any real experience. It was, <laughs> he thought that, he thought, he believed in this sort of concept of progressivism and service, but he didn't, you know, he was, he was so focused in a lot of ways on the idea that he needed to first accomplish things in his career in order to do good and serve others, that that was sort of the whole point. And, and that's really what a lot of my book is about looking at is the way that polio, which seems like it's the end of his grand career in a lot of ways, in fact, puts him in a, in a, in a new setting where he's going to understand, he's going to develop all these powers that he's never needed before, empathy and strategic thinking and this sort of genius for inspiring hope and sustaining it and fostering it in others um, that are going to be the things that he uses um, in the depression and the war. So just to, and, 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 I, and I take your point on this. It's a really interesting argument and narrative. Are you 100% convinced that he was a great man? Is there no doubt in your mind about that? I would, yes, I would, I would argue that one uh, quite confidently. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously he was a deeply flawed man, like a lot of leaders that we admire from the 20th century are. Um, but I don't, you know, you look at the, at the decisions that he had to make and how close we were to the brink in this country when he came into the White House. There's the famous story about the sort of the, the, the hundred days where someone comes to FDR and says, Mr. President, if your program succeeds, you'll be the greatest president ever and in history. And if it fails, you'll be the worst. And FDR corrects him and says, if it fails, I'll be the last. I mean, that wasn't hyperbole. Um, this, this was a, a moment. Why would he have been the last? 
because I think that there was there was fear that you know if the economic system collapsed in this country that the constitutional order would as well, um, and that and that and and that there would be you know this was the age of dictators, um, and that that could that could easily rise in the United States. And I, I subscribe to that view, um, and I think that it's that, that you really can't discount the sort of um, the spiritual injection that FDR gives to the country. Uh, by inspiring hope in the first days of his presidency and and sort of leading the country in, in the years that followed. So let's go back to the thesis about adversity can lead to greatness, the core of your book, Becoming FDR, this period between uh, 1921 and 1928. It, it, is this realized through himself? It's almost like a it could be a business book, Jonathan. Oh, well, I got sick and then I understood myself and then I became a great leader. What actually happened in those seven years? So he gets polio um, at age 39. Um, and again, he's, he's all, his whole identity up to that point has been, as you, as you put it, sort of he's the reincarnation of Teddy Roosevelt. He's the picture of vigor and athleticism and sort of virile American manhood. And he gets polio, which at that point in time is a disease that has all sorts of stigma attached to it. Um, and, and being disabled in general was at best, um, you would be a source of pity. Um, you wouldn't be someone that people would think of as a natural leader. So his whole um, identity is sort of washed away in, 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 the mid, in, the, in a single night um, when he loses the ability to walk. And he, um, you know, a lot of people around him counsel him that he's, you know, he comes from this very comfortable, wealthy family. He should just retire to his home in Hyde Park, New York, and live a comfortable, quiet life as a country squire. He gets mm. the idea that he is going to return to politics. And he's not only going to return to politics, he's going to become the president of the United States. But to do that, he needs to devote his, his life to recovering as much mobility as he can, um, and he really d does devote the next few years to that. And it's in that process um, that, that he does, you know, what Eleanor Roosevelt calls, he's forced to, 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 to reckon with the fundamentals of living. Um, and, and, he, and he develops um, all these gifts that he's never really needed before. Um, he has to think about timing and strategic ability. Like, again, when you're, when you're a sort of young, charismatic guy, you walk into a room, you're pretty confident that things are going to work out well for you. If you're a guy who is in a wheelchair and you're trying to um, plot a return to politics, you need to think much harder about what what the, what your next step is and what the step after that is. And I think he also becomes aware, and this is the sort of most crucial point here, um, he becomes aware for the first time of what it means to suffer. And he also becomes aware of how much more privileged in a lot of ways he is than other people. Um, you know, he gets he gets polio, which is a disease which is associated at that time with with children. It's called infantile paralysis commonly. Um, and it's also associated with poor people and with recent immigrants to the United States. It has a lot of stigma uh, attached to it. And so and, you know, some people write letters to him um, and they say they say things like you're the last person I could have ever imagined to get polio. And I think he could have sort of leaned into that. He could have said, I don't have anything to do with these other people who have polio. Instead, they become, he identifies with them and they become this great sustaining network for him. 
Are you, uh, in an odd kind of way, arguing that he became an American? He became an American. Um, I think he would contest that notion. He was. He was. Well, very... he's not around to contest anything. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't. I don't... It, it just sounds to me. It's all. This is all so convenient. Um, that he he sort of fits in. Oh, he got a, He became disabled and. Uh, this was the kind of disability that poor people normally had. So that made him realize that uh, that made him empathetic to poor people. And it, it's 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 a little neat, isn't it? I mean, it's neat, but it's it's, you know, I'm convinced at least because of 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 what I what I saw in my research. Um, you know, for me, I like, take your point. Uh, what about the ideology is as if he didn't. It's as if he was still living outside of history. What happened in the 1920s? How did he experience the crash and the, 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 the you know, the Gatsby years? What, what was his experience of the real world? So the, let, let's do them one by one. The Gatsby years are a sort of, um, a, a, I think, a, a unique moment for him because everyone around him in the 1920s is is getting he has all sorts of well-connected and wealthy friends and he knows plenty of people who are doing really well financially um, without putting much effort into it um and i think he's sort of interested in that in those years he's he's certainly interested in making money um but it doesn't it doesn't become his obsession and actually when it comes down to it um he's these are the years where as i say he's focused on his recovery the biggest investment of his personal fortune that he makes in these years and it's and it's a huge portion um is in buying the uh resort rehabilitative colony at warm springs georgia um and that's because he goes there in 1924 he's drawn there at first because he's told that the that it's a spa resort and that the waters there have these magical powers that can give him back the ability to walk um and in his first trip there, the first time he gets in the water, he does feel that these waters are sort of magical. And one of the first thoughts he has is, it's a shame that it's just for me. And very quickly, he starts thinking of Warm Springs as not just a place that he can, that can help him, but a place where he can help others. So he buys the resort. He maybe has some obscure idea that it's going to turn a profit for him, but no one around him thinks that's the case. They all think it's a terrible use of his funds. Um, but he buys the resort and he turns it into a place um, that is going to be helpful to other people who have a, a lot fewer, who have far fewer means than he does. Um, and, and, and he really gets invested in their recovery. I mean, one of the things that I, that I quote in the book is there's a, there's a patient's report you can look at from Warm Springs where it describes, you know, X patient came here, he, this muscle, this muscle and this muscle were, were this size. During the weeks that he's been here, they've grown to this size. When he came here, he was unable to, to walk at all uh, with, outside of a wheelchair. He's now able to go a quarter of a mile on, uh, on crutches and braces. And then at the bottom of the report, the person who's written it signs his name, and it's Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, that's not someone who is just trying to do political posturing. That's someone who is actually takes a certain pride and an interest in helping other people to um but, but, but jonathan this could be interpreted as i mean he's clearly was a decent guy and clearly went through a lot and i'm not critical in in that sense but this could have been just as much a, a noblesse oblige from 
a conservative than it would be from the left. What about politically? I mean, you know, he is best remembered, for, for better or worse, as the architect of the New Deal. How did he prepare for the New Deal in the 1920s? What came out of his experience that enabled him to architect this New Deal, which really did shape America in the 20th century and was his major legacy? Yeah. I mean, I think about, um, you know, there's there's a, a famous line in in the speech uh, that FDR gives in 1932, which 1932, where he's sort of laying out the New Deal for the first time, although he never uses the words, which is try something. Uh, if it fails, admit it plainly. But but above all, try something. Um, and I, I really see a, a, a link between that and, and and the period that I write about in the 20s, because that is the governing ethos. He's really in the 20s focused on regaining the ability to walk. And he's willing to, to, to explore all sorts of methods. And I think, I think in terms of the principles of the New Deal, um, Warm Springs is, is in a lot of ways um, a sort of laboratory for him of, of, of how you in, inspire hope um, in, in people. Uh, so he, he focuses there on policies that are going, you know, he gets this idea very early on from his own experience that when someone is is in distress and is experiencing suffering, you can't solve all their problems right away, but you can do things to restore their dignity right away. Um, so he, so at Warm Springs, for example, he focuses on, on changing areas, on adding changing areas and, and adding walkways um, so that people can, can change in to go into the pool way, to go into the pool with more privacy that had been a sort of dehumanizing experience for a lot of polio patients to have to undress in front of strangers. Um, and he adds in these walkways that are going to, that are going to make more of a community there. And I think it's this idea that people who are, who are people's recovery will be enhanced if they have greater community and, and greater dignity. And that's sort of the uh, guiding ethos in, in the, in the new deal programs that animate him. Um, and it's it's not a sort of he's not a, a, a an economic tactician who who is spending these years thinking about well what's going to be the best way to to um, to you know reorganize the economic order uh, to to make to make a more just future he he does believe in that principally I mean and and when he emerges in politics uh, after polio starting as in the nineteen twenty eight New York governor's race. He's talking um, pretty consistently about this idea that there's the sort of fundamental principles of the American Revolution and of American and, and of and of the De Declaration of Independence have been violated in the 1920s by the sort of unequal distribution and the and the and the and the ability of moneyed interests to take control of the government. So he does see, feel, feel a sense of purpose to to sort of rebalance that. But he's not someone who's really focused on economic on economic particulars. He's more he's more interested in sort of what do you do when people are suffering uh, to to inspire hope and and really and really sustain resilience over the long term. We did a show last year with William Galston, very influential Wall Street Journal columnist, foreign policy thinker, imagining the COVID year. Actually, it was a couple of years ago. The COVID year of twenty twenty as being another. 1933. Do you think there are similarities between the America that um, that uh, that FDR 
came to rule 1932 and the America uh, of, of the 2020s? You know, I, uh, I was working on this book during the sort of worst days of the pandemic um, and the 2020 election and, and its, its aftermath. Um, and on some of the more frightening days, I really came back to a line that FDR gave in a speech in 1932 when he was running for president. Um, and he said, out of every crisis, mankind rises with some sense, with some share of greater knowledge, of higher decency, and of purer purpose. And then, you know, I, I would look at those words and then um, I would look at events like January 6th and say, gosh, <laughs> I hope that's true. Um, I hope that we're going to come out of all of this with greater knowledge and, and higher decency and, and purer purpose. Um, and, it, and I confess that in moments, you know, it, it feels hard right now to see, to see where that is. Um, but you then think about FDR in the summer of 1932 when he was saying that, that was, as I was saying earlier, another moment of sort of existential peril in this country. It was sort of the darkest days of the Depression. Um, and he said it, and I think he said it because, because, and people believed him, because he believed it. And he believed it because he had lived it in his own life. He had gone through this great crisis of polio, and he had come out of it a better person with a fuller understanding of what it meant to be a human being in the world. There's almost a, I mean, even if it's a secular narrative, there's a religious uh, transformation here. Uh, you argue, uh, you wrote an interesting piece, how FDR would have defeated Trump. Do you think he would have? How would he have done it? I think that, that um, I think I mean, he would have. You know, of course, Biden defeated Trump as well. So it's not as if only FDR could have done it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I thought about about Joe Biden a lot uh, when I was working on this. And, and right now we're having this this debate um, in the in this country about whether uh, whether uh, Biden has sort of gone over a line by calling out um, the, the ultra MAGA wing of the Republican Party and calling them semi fascists and whether that sort of crossed a line and, and gone away from from. Uh, from his more more high-minded, um, unity-oriented uh, 2020 campaign, I think if you look at the FDR example, um, the, 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 there's no—it's a false choice between being someone who is inspiring and unifying and someone who is willing to call out um, his opponents in the in the harshest terms. Um, so you know, famously in, in his 1936. Uh, campaign. He gives a speech in Madison, Gar Madison Square Garden at the end of uh, the campaign, and he says, um, and he says, you know, uh, of the of the moneyed interests in this country, he says they are united in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. But at the end of that same speech, um, he talks about how the thing that is going to sustain and save American democracy is peace and love and goodwill among men. Um, I think. He didn't feel at all shy about expressing both of those sentiments in the same speech because they came for him from the same place of moral conviction. He believed that he was right uh, in calling out his enemies, and he believed that, that, that a sort of spiritually ennobling moment was possible in the United States at that time. 
So he became a good man through his own physical illness. We, let's end on politics, because for me, I mean, FDR's major legacy, for better or worse, is political rather than transformational in a religious sense, although you, of course, I think might disagree. We've done a number of shows about the decline of the American, of the Republican Party, one of the parties um, in American democracy, did one recently with Dana Milbank, I'm sure you know him and his work with destructionists, um, also one with Kevin Boyle about mm -hmm. how the Republicans are in still in the legacy of, of Nixon, uh, the, the, the Milbank traces it back to Newt Gingrich. So there's this idea that one party's gone bad. But the other thing on the other side is even more bizarre about what's happened in American politics is this, this you know, it's the, the line from Simon and Garfunkel, where have you gone, FDR, a nation, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I did a show with Michael Kazin, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party, which looks back to FDR and, and the New Deal. And I've had so many conversations, um, Jonathan, with progressives who say, well, the fix is to go back to FDR. But in your narrative, going back to FDR is actually very tricky, which may explain why we can't go back to FDR and why the Democrats in their own way are in as much of a crisis as the Republicans. How would, how would you, given your intimacy with FDR, how would you caution or encourage Democrats to go back to FDR? I think that FDR um, and, uh, you know, I was talking earlier about how, how polio gives him this understanding of timing and strategic thinking. Um, I think FDR, by the time he comes to the presidency in 1932, he believes in a sort of progressive vision and he believes in, in sort of reinventing the compact between Americans and their government and, and what we come to think of as the New Deal but he's also quite cautious in terms of how he frames it. So remember, in a lot of ways, when he's running, when he's running for president in 1932, um, he's talking about, he's not talking about a massive expenditure in, a massive expansion in federal spending. He's talking about balancing the budget. And I think that's because he's aware that as much as people, Americans want change at that moment in time, and they want and they want programs that are going to that are going to have a meaningful difference in their lives. There is this sort of um, consistent streak in and, and a hostility to government overreach in America that he that he didn't agree with, but he paid attention to. So I think this idea that Democrats just need to be like Franklin Roosevelt and advocate for 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 a larger role for government. Um, is 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 a little bit simplistic because I think so it's you're not in the Kazin camp on that front. I think I think that I mean you know there's there's a lot he's of things. He's progressive. He's on the left of the Democratic Party. So you don't have to be. He may not even be in the Democratic Party. In his own no, I mean I, I I you know I think there's there's a strong argument to be made that we need we need a, a government that is far more attuned to the needs of working people. I just think that FD, what FDR would have been thinking about always, um, and this is true with the New Deal, and it's true very much with um, the run up to the war, is 
how do we sell it and 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 what do people want right now um and is and and what and what are my opponents going to say fdr was not a purist um in terms of saying i'm gonna i'm gonna make the case for progressive change and and let the chips fall where they may um you know that it was it's that some people might judge him for that in a certain way it was frustrating to people on the left at the time um, it was frustrating to his wife, Eleanor, that he didn't, and I think justifiably so, um, that he didn't pay more attention to the cause of civil rights. Um, and that was because he was very attuned um, to the sort of political reality, um, an unfortunate reality of the time, which was the, the role of segregationists, white segregationists in the Democratic Party. Um, so he didn't want to get out in front of what he thought was politically achievable. So I think this there's there's a lot of FDR gets used a lot on the left um, to talk about sort of as a as a way of critiquing um, the limited ambition of today's democratic establishment. Um, and certainly, I think FDR shows that that um, today's democratic establishment could have a lot more imagination. In right. terms but of you know, it's a funny that the story you tell is is ironic in the sense that the, the Roosevelt you describe is Clintonian in his, or even Obama-like in their ability to understand political realities. And yet because of circumstance, he was able to fundamentally reshape everything. But um, he was, it's, he was it's, cut from the same cloth as Clinton and Obama, who were highly sophisticated politicians who recognized their own limitations. That's right. Um, and he's and it's an imperfect, you know, no, it's an imperfect and contradictory story in a lot of ways. So right. Which makes it so it. interesting and so important. Is there anyone yeah. of all the politicians around today? Is there anyone who most reminds you of FDR? I mean, obviously not Biden. <laughs> well, I do think um, I, I do think it's worth paying attention to the fact that Biden uh, has had his life and his worldview as well. Shaped right from a, another tragedy, blah blah blah. But do we really want to go down that path, Jonathan? I think that I think that you know we we know that both of them were able to make connections with individuals. We've uh, you know based on on their own experience. So Biden, we see this again and again when he's out meeting people who are experiencing grief. He can form a connection. FDR was able to do it, take it to another level. He was able to apply the lessons from his own experience. And think about what does the country as a whole need in a moment of, in a moment of peril, um, and and what did I, and and how does that relate to what I needed in that moment? I don't I don't know that Biden has done that as effectively in in his first two years in office um, as well. Um, but you know I don't I, I don't really have anyone out there that um, and this gets back to sort of what I was saying before about how it can be hard to find hope sometimes. Uh, I don't have anyone that, that sort of jumps off the page to me as an FDR figure, but I do think that, you know, this book has made me think at least differently about how we should evaluate politicians who talk about hope. It's a word that gets used in our politics. Mm, so especially, I mean, Clinton, yeah. his middle name. He was even from hope. Obama too. And I mean, yeah. and you know, and but it's it's become a cliche. So we sort of tune it out. You know, when they when they it's 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 talk about irony, you know, it's the thing we need most now. But when a politician talks about hope, we sort of tune it out because it's sort of meaningless. And so I think the question that 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 for me, after spending this time thinking about FDR, um, is that we is when when we hear a politician talk about hope, say, when did they need it in their own lives? 
And what did they find in that experience? And what's the lesson that they're going to apply to it today? Yeah, it's a really interesting argument and narrative, because you could also suggest that you can find those narratives much more comfortably in business leaders in sports leaders in cultural leaders, which speaks to the, the broader political crisis. But fascinating stuff, Jonathan. Congratulations on the book. I love the title, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President. In other words, before that personal crisis, FDR wasn't FDR. It's great stuff. Congratulations on the book. It's just out, I'm sure, uh, like your first book, um, Landslide. It's going to be a bestseller. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you again, Jonathan. What else are you reading these days? Anything interesting apart from um, uh, finishing your book? Yeah, um, so I, I would I would recommend a couple of books. Um, I recently read and reviewed a book uh, called Secret City by James Kerchick, which yeah, is yeah yeah I saw you wrote about that. James was on the show. He's good. Yeah, I I, I love that book because it, for me it, it's more that it's a it's a the history of gay Washington, but it's really about a lot more than that. It's about sort of the whole power game in Washington and the sort of role that that hypocrisy and posturing can play in that. So I found it sort of illuminating um, in a lot of ways. Um, and another book that I would recommend um, is a book that's that I'm reading right now. It's just come out um, by a, a woman whose name was Julia Reed. It's called Tales from the Gilded Age. Uh, Julia was a friend to me, but she was a friend to, to millions of other people because she was just such a huge personality. And she wrote about politics, but she also wrote about travel and about food. And she was a sort of very earthy Southern woman um, and, and, and reading her stuff is such a pleasure because she just had this, she had this idea that life was about going out and seeking delight and then, and then remembering the details. Um, Julia unfortunately died in 2020. And so this, this, this book has been really wonderful for me as someone who knew her because it's like hearing her voice. And I think a lot of people who didn't know her would really love hearing her voice as well.